Nehemiah chapter 4. Guys, you are probably more than aware that we are experiencing a battle in our day. It is not just whether you are to squeeze the middle of the tube of toothpaste or the end. It has more to do, it, it has far more to do than how you put the roll of toilet paper, whether it's on the inside or outside. And it has a whole lot more to do than just whether you leave the toilet seat up or not. This is a battle that is going on, and right now, many of us, our focus is on what's going on on the national level. Now, I want to say that what's going on on the national level is significant, but I want us to realize that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is far more than this. Now, consider... Regardless of who takes the president's seat, it is always possible that as Americans, we will lose certain freedoms. This is always a possibility. It happened in so many nations. It can happen in America. We could have, we, we could have the freedom of worshiping God taken from us. We could have the freedom of being able to evangelize in our culture taken away from us. But I need us to see that we are engaged not in a physical battle, but a spiritual one. And the two can intersect. Those freedoms that are taken from me can in some measure impact my walk with Christ, but it doesn't need to. I can choose to worship. I can choose to evangelize regardless of whether that freedom is given to me or not. People are persecuted throughout the world because they make a choice to stand for the kingdom of God regardless of what the system and the kingdoms of this world dictate to them concerning their freedoms and their rights. So here's what I want us to do. As we go through Nehemiah, I want our focus to be singular. I want it to be on the kingdom of God and not on the kingdoms of this world. Because one day, Revelation 11 says, the kingdoms of this world will become Jesus' kingdom. They will eventually come to an end, and all of those in those kingdoms who have believed in Jesus will rule and reign with him forever and ever. And this is the kingdom that I am a citizen of, and every single one of you who are believers in Jesus are citizens of as well. We are ambassadors on this planet, and we are seeking to live out our citizenship for him in this world. So with eyes of faith right now that see beyond the potential uh, voter fraud that, that could be going on, we need to pray. We need to allow that to play out. We need to allow the system to work if it can. We need to make appeals as may be needed. But in the end, regardless of who is sitting in the White House, God's kingdom is not shaken. This is our confidence, not who is sitting in the White House. Now, I, don't, I, I think that's important, but God's kingdom is the one that's eternal. So with that focus, I want us to look at Nehemiah chapter 4. I want us to ask this question, how are we to build these walls? And we saw that these walls have to do with the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to read the text, and then I want us to, to ask some questions and dig into this and see how relevant it is in our day-to-day -day walk with regard to God's kingdom. 
Are you there with me? Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 15. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we built the wall till half of it reached, excuse me, we built the wall, rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod, now that would be Philistine, heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. First they were angry, now they're really angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot build the wall, rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who had lived near them came and told us 10 times over. Underline that in your Bible. Church, 10 times over. They came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. Now let's understand that the battle is not over. I want us to step back, and in the face of this threat, how does Nehemiah respond? Because how he responds has a lot of implications for us today in how we are to respond in the face of a potential fight, in the face of a battle that is far more than physical. It is spiritual. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the authorities, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
The, this is where our battle lies. And so we are to put on the full armor of God. Well, what does this battle look like? How do we engage in this battle? How does Nehemiah? Let's step back and look. I, I want us to see that <laughs> as they are working, it says here in verse 1 that Sanballat hears that they're rebuilding the wall, and he's angry, he's incensed, and he begins to ridicule the Jews. He hears what's going on, and he's angry. Sanballat is more than likely the governor of Samaria. He has a lot of interest at stake here, whether Jerusalem becomes another political powerhouse or not. Maybe it would affect some of his business dealings. Maybe it would affect his own personal freedoms or how far the extent of his rule is. Any number of things. He has a vested interest in this and does not want to see the Jews in Israel rise up again. Now, you might remember Samaria. That was that place located around central Israel. <coughs> this is where the Samaritans come from. And they are in many ways, not just religiously, but politically as well, opposed to the Jews. Now turn over to chapter 2, verse 7. I want us to see something here. This does not come as a surprise to Sanballat. He doesn't see them building the wall and say, oh my goodness, what are they doing? This comes, I, I didn't know they were doing this. What's your plan? What are you trying to, he actually already knows. And this is how we know. As you turn to chapter 2, verse 7, <clears throat> excuse me, Nehemiah has already asked the king, and the, the king of Persia has granted him uh, to become the leader of this project now, actually becoming governor of Jerusalem, but leader in this project of rebuilding the wall. He is then sent with an escort, a military escort, from where he's staying in Babylon all the way, or Persia, all the way over to Jerusalem. There's an escort. There is a financial gift that comes with him, wood and such, to rebuild gates. The king has made a way for this. He asks him in verse 7, listen to this. He says, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. The governors of trans-Euphrates would include all of these sub-leaders, if you will, political leaders, governors of certain portions of Arabia and Samaria. Sanballat receives one of these letters. He knows what's going on here. Verse 9, it even explains. He says, And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone like Nehemiah, someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. God raises up leaders in our day to come to the aid of his church, to help lead them, not so much in a political battle, but in this spiritual battle. And this spiritual battle takes place on numerous levels. It can take place in, in your workplace. 
It can take place in your home. It can take place in your heart. The most significant place of this battle is your heart. And I want us to see, then, how do we fight this battle? How do we fight this battle? Nehemiah realizes what I am telling you here. There is a way that he chooses to fight this battle that is not like you and I perhaps would. I want us, before we get into the very first thing and how he responds to this potential battle, I want us to realize they, in the Old Covenant, they are building this wall around around Jerusalem. Now, I said that this is a picture of the wall around the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. We also learned that Jesus, Yahweh, is the wall of fire around Jerusalem. And so our question is, well, if Jesus is this wall of fire, then what part do I play? His wall of fire, doesn't that protect the kingdom? And I want to tell you that you absolutely are a part of this. Isaiah, you don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah 26.1, this is what it says. In that day, this song will be sung, excuse me, in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Now, I mentioned to you ramparts are walls, but they have a flat top and they have a parapet. That is a stone parapet, and you've seen them. Many times they're formed like this so that you can stand behind it, and at some points in the wall, you can shoot your bows and arrows, you know, pour, you know, tar and fire and whatever on your enemies as they're approaching it, and you can defend the city but protect yourself, okay? That's a parapet. That is a rampart that you can walk on. The wall of Jerusalem, this wall of fire, is the walls of salvation. Jesus, now follow me here. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever comes to the Father does so by me. Jesus himself is the truth. The gospel That is what protects, that is what defines who it is that actually lives in this kingdom. Jesus, the wall of fire, is this truth. So Jesus is truth personified. The gospel is truth written down. They are different. They are not the same. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot do that with the written word. Here is my point. There is a part that we play in defending this truth. Who is Jesus? Defending the the truths and the principles of the gospel. And Satan will do anything he can to pull these walls down. So my question then is, as we are defending this wall, Nehemiah, what did he do? Now, what do we do in the new covenant? Well, let's look at what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah we are told his enemies, most specifically Sanballat, he comes and he begins to insult the people of Israel, the Jews. 
Does he come and attack them, physically attack them? Here he does not. I want us to see how does Sanballat respond, because what Tobiah is doing is he is speaking insults, he is seeking to ridicule them, he is using a tactic to discourage the people to maybe even stir up a fight. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, oh my goodness, did I get into fights. And you know how they stirred me up to fight them? Do you know how in my own family I would always end up fighting my brothers? Even my brother Rob. You remember Rob. Rob is this huge guy. He, he was nicknamed the Hulk, and I could not even wrap my arms around him. He, he was just this big guy. But I fought him all the time. And you know why I was so stupid to do that? Because he knew how to get to me. He would insult me. He would say something that would make me get angry and want to defend myself by punching him, by hitting him, by fighting him, by grabbing a hold of him, by doing anything imaginable to take him down. I never took him down, by the way. But this is how people, when I was growing up in elementary school, public school system, I got in fights a lot because people would do this to me. They would hurl insults at me. They would, and this is the tactic. I would do it too, all right? Is this, how does Nehemiah respond? Does he go outside the city gates and start hurling insults back at Sanballat? He doesn't. He doesn't go out, he doesn't take a military force with him out the gates and, and confront him and say, we're drawing a line here. Understand this, where is Sanballat? It says that number one, he is gathered with his associates in the army of Samaria. The army of Samaria. Well, are they back in Samaria hurling, talking in some meeting about these insults? No, if you were to look down here in verse 5, it says they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Sanballat is just outside the wall. His associates there, political associates are there. The army of Samaria is there as well. That's threatening. But how does Nehemiah respond? He doesn't hurl insults back. He doesn't gather an army and say, come on, let's duke it out. He doesn't do that. Instead, he does not meet that threat, that verbal threat, with another verbal threat. What does he do? He prays. He seeks God. He says, God, this is the way it is, and I am asking you to intervene however you choose, but cause them to back off. Can I just say that one of the main ways that we get into arguments, that we engage in a physical battle, whether it's at work or home, is by being angry and not using our anger as our ally, but using our anger as a weapon in the body of Christ. Political lines are being drawn in the body of Christ. Insults are being hurled. Accusations are being hurled. Maybe some of them are true. I would imagine a lot of them are false. 
Anger is being stirred up, and we begin to fight one another. We begin to engage in a battle just like the world does. How about in your home? One of the first principles I teach concerning marriage in marriage counseling is she or he is not your enemy. You are on the same team. We need, to, we need to know who the enemy really is, and that is who we fight against, not against one another. Learn to use anger as your ally, not as a weapon. But I tell you, I, I grew up not learning that. I had to. My mom had to. I had just given my heart to Christ, and I was still getting into fights with my brother Rob, and I had to learn... I was a part of the, I, I, I got tired of listening to her say to me, it takes two to fight. It takes, two. how many of you have ever heard that, hey, it takes two to fight? And I'm just thinking, no, it doesn't. He is just saying, he's getting me angry. He's trying to push my buttons. It doesn't matter. Nehemiah's buttons were pushed and he still responded the same way. He realized he could not engage in a physical battle. That would be a battle he would lose. But that's what Sam Ballot was doing. The enemy is trying to engage you in a battle. And he is trying to lure you to fight in a way that you will lose. Do you know how he engages in his battle? Lies. He speaks lies. That's what these insults are all about. They're all about lies. And lies then cause our, the goal of Satan is that we believe these lies. And they stir up anger. I can guarantee you Nehemiah is angry. But he chooses how to fight. It's so different than what I learned as a kid. Jesus, when he was on the cross, Insults were hurled at him. Oh my God, over and if you're the son of God, then come down off that cross. The, the criminals beside him, one in particular, if you're the son of God, then rescue us. Over and over, Jesus was ridiculed, tested. He never hopped off the cross, church. He never called down a legion of angels to fight for him. Instead, because he realized his kingdom was not of this world. Go ahead, crucify me. You will only be playing into the very plan of my God, my Father. I want to when the enemy comes against you with insults from a brother or a sister in your home or in the church or in the workplace, a boss who may not even be saved and he ridicules you and puts you down, guard your words. Don't hurl back insults. Don't engage in the political um, talk that goes on there that seeks to undermine leadership. Don't engage in that. That's what the enemy is trying to lure you into. Office gossip, rampant. That's not what we're called to. Husbands and wives, we are called to speak truth and not lies. Insults seek to wound, stir up anger, breed lies, so you believe it and you defend yourself and you fight back. 
This divides the body of Christ. This divides Christian homes. This divides an America. I understand that there are very good reasons for why people hold the political views that they do. I hold a political view, and I hold to it very strongly. I hope I'm teachable. When we engage in this battle, when Nehemiah engaged in this battle, he realized right away, I have to be so careful because I could play right into the enemy's hands. Are you playing into the enemy's hands today? Are you engaging in a verbal back and forth that hurts, wounds? Because if you are, you've played into the enemy's hands, you've played into his concept of if I lie, if I accuse, hey, you're using your anger as a weapon and not as your ally. Well, let's move on. What else does he do? It says here that they actually plot, Sanballat plots, with a physical threat. That physical threat is met in both a spiritual way, but a physical way as well. But they do not engage. You're going to come against us. You're going to, your, your goal is to try and attack us. Well, then at the lowest parts of the wall, I've got people ready. The city was on high alert. The enemy could come in day or night. They could come in. They never went and attacked. They just said, okay, we're here. We're ready. But Nehemiah realized that this threat was stirring something up in the people. Do you see it right there? Right there in verse 10. They start confessing the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. The devil wants you to throw the towel in. The devil wants you to see that this job of rebuilding my home, of of me following Christ the way he wants, is beyond my abilities. It just can't be done. There's too much rubble. There's too much junk in here. There's too much junk in my home. You're you're trying to grow the business. There's too much against the business. But I'm going to tell you this right now. If God is in your business, then he will make a way. God is in your life. God is in your home because you're in your home. He will make a way, and that is certain. God does not want your marriage to end in divorce. God does not want you to throw the towel in and walk away from God. He wants to discourage you. He wants you to look around in your life and say, I just can't. It's too much. I'm so weary. Have you ever been there? Not only does the enemy, and this is Sanballat's goal, understand, with this physical threat that is right literally at their doorstep, he wants to stir up this sense of weariness and this sense we can't, so they give up. He's a psychological manipulator. And I want to tell you this, that is exactly what the devil our enemy is. He's trying to wear you down. But what else does he do here? It tells us in verse 12, it says, Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over. Now, I don't know if that's an exaggeration, ten times over, meaning just a lot, or if it's lit, Nehemiah counted them. One, two, three, four, ten times. Can you believe it? But ten times over, 
This is what they said. Ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. He effectively instilled fear in their hearts. Fear of loss of their own lives, of their families. Remember what I said. When the enemy comes to attack, he will always seek to attack truth, the wall around the kingdom of God. He will always seek to attack truth, and he will do it with lies. His goal is for you to believe the lie. Too much rubble. I can't do it. No matter where I turn, no matter how hard I try, I will fail. Why try? Why don't I give up? Ten times over, wherever they attack, you're going to be killed. The enemy is too strong. Have you ever felt that way? I'm going to tell you this right now. I have felt that way. Actually, I have felt that way many times. And I've had to come back to passages like this and just say, God, I feel so weary right now. Part of that weariness, by the way, so you know, is because I just got into an argument with my wife. And can I be really open with you on more than probably two hands, seriously? I have felt wearied. I was in an argument with my wife, and I literally thought my marriage is going to fail. Yep, I'm, I, I blew it this time. She is so upset with me. She is hurt, and that was me. I got defensive. I didn't follow what Nehemiah did or what Jesus did on the cross, who when he was insulted did not retaliate but entrusted himself to him who is a just judge. I didn't do that. I got defensive. I used words as my weapon and not as my ally. You can actually use anger as an ally. I chose not to. I chose to get defensive. I chose to engage in, a, in hurtful words, dredging up the past, making accusations, and I would hurt my wife, and I would just, how foolish. I can remember, though, some years back, many years back, my wife and I found ourselves on the same team against an enemy. The enemy had gotten into my home. But we had to recognize who this enemy was because it was not our daughter. The flesh in us wanted to see it that way, but we realized that is not who our enemy is because we loved our children. But from the age of 9 to 12, my daughter engaged in rebellion. And it just started so simply, rolling of her eyes. Asked when she would be disobedient, she would stomp off to the bathroom and throw a temper tantrum. She would scream. She would yell. Oh, yeah. If you think your child can yell, I have a child that can top that. But I tell you what, you look at her today, you would never, ever in your life think that because God got a hold of Rose. Eight years old, we saw these seeds of rebellion, and we had to step back and say, God, where is this coming from? And my wife and I, it would be so easy to point the finger and say, well, it was you. It's you who did this. It's you who said this or did that that wounded her heart. Instead, we said, okay, what was my part? And 
each of us had to own something and repent. And that's how my wife and I got on the same team. We repented. We had to humble ourselves, not accuse. So now that we're on the same team, we are engaging a vicious enemy. He wants us to give up. Have you ever fought a battle for four to five years? It is over and over almost every day. It will weary you down. You will, be, you will step back and you will begin to wonder, God, are you even there? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever f- met the enemy in, in which you just wondered, when am I going to lose? Am I going to lose my daughter? I, to be honest, that terrified us. It terrified us. I will do anything. And I remember telling her, sweetheart, I want you to know that this behavior is not acceptable. Your heart is wrong. But I tell you what, I will fight for you. I will not allow the enemy to get your heart. I love you. And whatever I have to do, whatever your mom has to do, we will do it because we love you. And and God, we fasted, we prayed for four to five years. God, show us a plan, show us a plan, show us a plan. It seemed at every turn we were losing. Where we repented, we truly sought to bring correction to our own hearts. Can I just say that through a series of events, God began to do something in our heart. We felt like giving up. We felt like the battle was too much and that we were going to lose. Just the way the Israelites. I tell you what, it didn't take someone to whisper it. In my ear, I heard 10 times over, there's too much rubble here. Throw in the towel. You will never be able to rebuild this wall to allow God to rebuild this child. And and there were times in which I felt hopeless. But I want to tell you what. When she turned 13, God began to do something so deep and so profound in her life. This daughter that when she was just three years old, I can remember as I would be praying in our, back on our porch and there was a table in the middle and I would walk around and I would just say, Father, please. And I would be you know, gesturing with my hands, please come through. And, and there she was following behind me saying, Father, Father, Father. And I just thought it was so adorable. But five years later, I met this girl that I had never known before. She used to, she used to pray, and there was such sincerity, and something has happened. God, I don't know what. And for four or five years, we're wrestling. And it was a battle that we felt we were losing. And I can tell you what, I can't remember if she was 14 or 15 or whatever. Tears that came to my eyes when I would go into my study and there was this same girl on her knees, on her face before God because God was dealing with her heart. To get to my Bible, I had to step over her, grab my Bible, no, keep praying, grab my Bible and I'm not going to have my quiet time in my study today and I would go out into the family room or wherever and God was dealing with my little girl's heart in a way that I there was no, nothing that was physical about it except that God was changing her heart. 
We serve a God that is telling you today, do not give up. We are serving a God who says, you're believing lies. I have a truth for you, and it's found in the word every day. Get in that truth and let it refresh you. Allow me to bring you to streams of water and to take you into the green pastures for me to revive your soul. Because some of you need that reviving, and you are so weary. We serve a God who can do the impossible. But if we feel that this is physical and we engage in it like it's a physical battle, I'm going to tell you what right now, you will lose. You'll lose your child. You'll lose your spouse. You'll lose your friend. You'll lose your job. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is so real and it is on your doorstep. But I want to tell you this. Equipped with truth, the enemy will be defeated. Don't let him get you to believe the lies. He is a wall of fire around you, church. He will defend you with this truth. If we choose to believe in that truth and not the lies, he is the one who will take down the enemy. Every time Jesus confronted the demons of darkness, he spoke truth because it is truth that sets people free. So here's what I want us to do. You can turn lights out. Whatever you want to do right now, let's just seek God. I don't know what he looks like on your doorstep in your life right now today, but I want to tell you what, the God that surrounds us with his wall of fire, this truth will win if we can just step back and humble ourselves and allow him to break through. Amen. If we could have these lights, let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We are engaged in a battle, Lord God, from a human perspective, it does seem impossible. We serve a God who is able to do the impossible. We serve a God who can change every single heart, and we believe this God. We serve a God that if we're willing to humble our hearts, admit what we've done wrong, allow our hearts to be yielded to you and corrected, and now embrace truth. God, you can do anything. You can change America. You can change your church. You can change hearts of those around us in our family, and you can change this heart. God, please. Minister amongst us, Lord. Minister truth. Minister power by your spirit, God. We're engaged in this battle. We're weary. Father, I ask you, Lord, hold us now. Hold us in that truth. Anchor us, God, in Jesus. We look to you, Jesus. You're the wall of fire. You are our walls of salvation. You are our everything. You're the redeemer of our souls. You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You have an amazing plan if we can hold on to that truth. The anchor of our souls, and that's what we do today. Please, God, take care of this battle. Defeat the enemy. Trample upon him, God. 
and make a way where there seems to be no way. Do the impossible. Whatever that looks like in each of our lives, would you do that, God? Your truth stands firm. We love you. You will not let us go. We cling to you and you alone. Church, I just want to encourage you that if God is ministering to you and you would like prayer, I want you to feel free to come up to the altar. Let's pray for you. Those of you online, if you're married, just pray over one another. Husbands over wives, wives over the husband, over your kids. Kids, pray for your parents. Let the Spirit of God speak truth into your hearts, into your life situations, and let Jesus be your defender. We don't walk with eyes of physical eyes. We walk with eyes of faith. So, Father, we just ask you, help us to be like Nehemiah. Help us to use our anger as our ally to fight this enemy. Don't let us get drawn into his battle, into his tactics. Just minister truth in our hearts and those around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.